0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a brand new podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy related issues and on our world today. My name is Tiger Gao, Princeton sophomore, and the director of outreach for undergraduate associates at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. So in our last episode, we had Dr. Christopher Marks, the managing director at Mitsubishi Financial Group with us in the studio. He talked a lot about development finance, how to bring in private investments into emerging markets with good innovative risk management tools and corporations with traditional lenders and big international organizations. It is truly a great episode. We really encourage you to listen to that. But today, we're actually going to follow that trend of thought and dig in a little bit more on the special continent of Africa. We think there's a lot to talk about. And just to give a quick intro about Dr. Christopher Marks, Dr. Marks is the Managing Director and Head of Emerging Markets in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa in Mitsubishi Financial Group. He has worked in the financial markets across the public and private sectors for more than 25 years. He also holds a PhD from Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School for Public Policy and International Affairs. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Marks, and glad to have you on another episode. Since we were already talking a lot about Africa in our last episode, about investing in Africa's development finance, uh, I thought we could just talk a little bit more about the economic and social development on this continent. Uh, For example, we all know China has been investing very heavily in Africa. How would you comment on China's investments? How would you say it's sort of different um, in china 's investment methodology and approach compared to the ones that Western nations and international organizations adopt and what are some of the lessons to be learned from those differences? Uh, we would really love to hear your thoughts on china and africa
1: it's it 's an exceedingly interesting question and i I think to give China credit, they have had a very clear vision um, about the importance of the embrace of Africa. And they have done this early on, Um, let's say for the past 15 or 20 years, they have incrementally invested in relationships and through this strategic vision have incorporated a range of economic investments which are packaged from the top down, so to speak. These are very strategic political relationships that are established with governments, and then there are a range of both publicly supported and private institutions that have followed in the wake of the broader vision. Let's be clear, there are more than 10,000 Chinese firms working in Africa today, and they, a lot of the smaller private institutions have followed in the wake of the very strong public support both politically, economically and financially, that have driven China's engagement. Now, as people are well aware, there are a number of concerns about the extent of the embrace of the Chinese strategic vision um, of a number of countries that have not necessarily managed prudently the opportunity set that China has offered. one of the great effectivenesses, and you did ask about the model uh, of the Chinese engagement, has been to arrive with both technical resources and financing authority from the public banks in order to serve as a one-stop shop. If you'd like a road built, if you'd like a railway built, or a stadium, or even a mosque. And it is true that China delivers on time and on budget. Yeah. Um There's a lot of concerns about the sustainability of the – not only the infrastructure that's put in place, but as well as the terms of the financing. I think there's a lot of critical views today that perhaps China, in pursuit of its own objectives, because this is not charity, um, in pursuit of its own objectives of securing natural resource exports, for example, Uh, both in terms of oil and gas or the extractive industries, they have not been sensitive to local government's ability to manage the debt, to manage the foreign exchange exposure, um, because naturally China, which is true of a lot of the big partners of Africa, they don't lend in local currency. They lend in hard currency, which have often left the African governments exposed to a lot of the foreign exchange volatility. As their currencies have weakened, their ability to pay back the hard currency loans naturally has been extremely challenging.
0: And just to clarify, by hard currency, you mean dollar or...
1: Or dollars or euro, primarily. And so the Chinese model has both allowed China to gain a great advance um, on some of the other partners on the continent, um, and I suppose the aggressiveness of the approach is what has prompted some of the critique.
0: So what about some of the other countries that engage with Africa? What are some of the other models that we are seeing today?
1: Now, what's been interesting, and I say this, for example, in the case of the Japanese, and I work for Japan's largest financial institution, Japan to date um, has been very commercial in its approach. They have obliged large Japanese trading houses, for example, including Mitsubishi Corporation, for example. um, Mitsubishi Corporation has to arrive in Africa and make their own commercial deals first with the government, negotiating as they would in Korea, in the United States, in Mexico, anywhere in the world. And once the transaction is confirmed, then the power of the Japanese public support comes in terms of subsidized financing, where they provide credit insurance for institutions like myself to support the Japanese corporation. And it is often true that, taking the case of Japan, the Japanese product is very high quality, lasts a long time, but it's more expensive. And often the Japanese have complained the Chinese are quicker and cheaper, um, and they come in not so much that the Chinese product may or may not be cheaper, which could be true, but they're quick on the financing and they make sure that the Chinese win the contract. So this has been the story for most of a decade and now both the Japanese as well as the European-American partners are trying to be much more proactive. So a lot of the European and the North American development agencies and the bilateral export credit agencies that support the arrival of private corporations, have learned from the Chinese and they're much more proactive. They try to be much more efficient. They work very closely with African governments today to try, of course, with their own their own commercial interests and mercantile vision at heart, but they try to move quickly in the way in which the Chinese have as well.
0: So do you think China will continue to invest heavily in Africa? Or do you actually think China will scale back its Africa operations given the recent trade war with the United States, for example.
1: I would say that it is true, as China has had to restructure domestically, and there's been a lot of concerns, as people are well aware, of a slowing down incrementally of China's own growth, that a lot of the public banks that have been active internationally supporting China's Belt and Road Initiative, for example... Um, there's a lot of work to do at home in China. There's concerns about the indebtedness of local governments at home, and so there's a careful managing at home that has to be done. And so what we observe is that some of the Chinese public banks that had been very proactive and comfortable expending their balance sheet in Africa a little bit more cautious today. So this also has given an opportunity for some of the other partners of the African countries to move in proactively. So you see it's a bit of a balancing today and I, I don't want to caricature as people quickly do the Chinese arrival in Africa. Um, Chinese were visionary. They understood very quickly about how to be good partners. Now I think this just a balancing out by African governments that they need other partners um, and they can't rely on the Chinese and that's why it's an interesting dynamic as some of the partners evolve.
0: That totally makes sense. So we've seen the publicly-led investments and the privately-led investments, both from China and from the West. Um, So regardless, there's just a lot of money going into Africa. So I guess my question here is, what is it about Africa as a continent that's so attractive in terms of investment compared to other emerging market countries like Asia or South America, what do you see in Africa? Some of the, I guess, unique advantages and also some of the challenges that come along. Um, what would you say about that, Dr. Marx?
1: Well, I think, I think, Tiger, let's be very practical. There are goods and bads to all of any um, opportunity that we look at in the case of the African continent. And again, we keep referring to Africa which is is an inappropriate way to do it. There are 54 countries. There are parts of the continent that are moving at great speed right. That with really young, dynamic governments um, that are eager to embrace different ideas and do not want to simply export raw materials, which is unfortunately the way Africa has engaged itself in the global economy to date. Um, but let's be clear. Africa is catching up. Um, It is true, taking the case of Latin America, for example, a lot of Latin America, which is a wonderful achievement, is quite middle income these days. Um, These are mature, well-developed, diversified economies um, that create a lot of wealth that have relatively interesting domestic markets, true of Mexico, true of Brazil, true even of Colombia, Peru, Chile. They may have more volatility than other parts of the OECD, but these are mature parts of the world. Equally true, of course, in Asia. Um, certainly, the whole ASEAN region, uh, with Singapore standing tall among them, um, also shows a great, a great diversity. Very wealthy jurisdictions like Singapore, of course, um, Indonesia, Malaysia, following quickly, and even countries like the Philippines that 20 years ago um, had a relatively slow development trajectory. These countries have moved quickly, and so. The only parts of the ASEAN region that really can compare today with the very mixed economic profile of the African continent um, are probably parts of Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, um, Burma, as we used to call it. Um, Those are really the parts of Southeast Asia that compare, honestly, to the level of development the level of growth and probably the economic stability of Africa so i make this introduction as a reminder that africa still has a long way to catch up and pulled ahead by the great economic power of china and japan and other north asian north asian countries that have pulled southeast asia up at high speed and continued to grow quickly africa does not yet have that great dynamic across all of its countries. And so the positive part about this story is you have an unusual dynamic of rapid growth in East Africa, in West Africa, selectively in some of the countries in North Africa like Morocco, Egypt to a lesser extent, that are moving at speed to diversify their economic activity. And I think one of the things that's quite passionate for me, and you asked, why is it interesting? Because in in Africa today, and it is part of a feature of the fact that other parts of the world have grown quickly, um, Africa has the ability today, developing as the latest continent to follow the dynamic that other parts of the world have followed, to leapfrog in some ways, past the decades of slow growth that a number of other, other countries have followed to embrace new technologies, to diversify, to understand that in order to create wealth for its populations, there's probably a range of sectors that will develop – and let's take an interesting example – telecoms. Telecoms or fintech, which seems unusual to talk about Africa in this space but it is true with those young populations with the embrace of mobile telephony for example you will do things in Africa over the next decade that took 30 years to arrive in Latin America and now the ability of populations to embrace the financial sector, for example, without having to build out branch networks and banks, it's probably true in parts of Africa. Those populations, young as they are, they will never see the inside of a bank. However, everyone's got a smartphone. Not everyone's got a smartphone yet, but it's coming. And once the smartphones get cheap enough, all those populations will have mobile money, they'll have banking services, they'll be able to embrace the mobile market the way that populations do around the world, Um, and they will leapfrog in many ways a lot of the developmental progress that took decades to do elsewhere in the world. So Africa gives you an opportunity set with all of its challenges to both observe a rapid acceleration, catching the development dynamics that were true elsewhere in the world, um, which new technology makes possible and which the demographic profile of the continent also provides an opportunity set, um, which isn't true with the slower-growing older populations now elsewhere in the world. So
0: I guess one of the biggest concerns that inevitably comes with our discussion on the dynamic between government and private sector and investment, one of the biggest concerns would be institutional capacity. It's about the policymakers, the government officials that run the country um, so what do you say about the, the institutional capacity in Africa, uh, the importance of good governance, professional administration? How would you comment on the challenges it presents? And I guess since the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, what do you think is the punchline here for the policymakers in Africa? Uh, what are their options, Dr. Marks? Um, what should the policymakers do?
1: I think at, at the end of the day, the ability for governments, either large economies such as you mentioned, South Africa, Nigeria, Egypt, these are big countries, um, or even smaller smaller countries, and we talked about Benin in passing, um, the true ability of these governments to take advantage of all the dynamics that we've just discussed, and even to know enough to reach out to public institutions to bring them in to take advantage of all of these dynamics. Um, As you rightly say, it is through capacity building. Now, one of the interesting things about working on the continent today, that in many, many, many countries, you have parts of the diaspora that have come back. These These are individuals who have been educated internationally or have work experience and have come home. Because of these interesting new conditions today that were not true 15 years ago, you have a lot of really bright, well-educated, globally-minded colleagues with whom you work in government that that are keen to embrace a lot of these new dynamics. Now, that talent pool is still relatively thin compared to the requirements, particularly in these big administrations. So one of the great contributions that development institutions can make today, and it gets back to points we've made previously, not lending, but policy advisory and capacity building, both for training, improvement in procurement policies, regulation, governments. This will allow governments to be able to invite in private partners, and it doesn't matter if it's in the education sector or in health or in transportation or even all the way back to the point about properly setting a regulatory framework so that, that those mobile money innovations are serving the great majority of the population, it takes a lot of competence at the government level. And as you rightly say, that is what will distinguish the, the countries which over time are best placed to take advantage. Political regimes will change. The level and the quality of governance will continue to be highly variable across the continent. But the quality of administration and the clarity of the vision of political leaders to bring in quality within their governments is going to be the hallmark.
0: So actually, would you mind giving us an example of good governance that you've seen in Africa
1: In the case of Uganda, where Mr. Museveni has been a political leader for a very long time. And there are mixed views about the advantages, as you can imagine, of having one man in control for many decades. But he was clever enough to recognize that when Uganda struck oil in Lake Albert, it's a very important feature of dynamics on the continent, having oil is both a blessing and a curse, Uh, for many countries. But he decided that for 10 years, they did not grant any concessions to extract the oil, because he was clever enough to recognize Uganda did not have the capacity in order to manage effectively those resources. There was no one in Uganda that knew how to manage petroleum licenses. There was no one in Uganda that knew how to set up a national oil company. So he sent out and I don't remember the number, but it was dozens and dozens of young, well-trained university students to be trained around the world to learn how to manage oil resources. And it was only after 10 years when this population of young people came back that he began the process of engaging with national oil companies around the world to try to bring in these very big players who were keen, as you might imagine, to get their hands on Uganda's oil. And it's only now that some of the contracts have been awarded, some of the big oil companies are now heavily engaged in in Uganda, both for the extraction of the oil, the creation of a pipeline out through through Tanzania in order to hit the international markets, and even to consider developing a refinery in Uganda. So it's an interesting case study, particularly in the most complicated of sectors for African economies, um, where the government has taken a prudent step to manage incrementally the beginnings of access in order to really manage it and to make sure Uganda gets full value over the next 30 years when hopefully the oil will still flow in Uganda.
0: Well, this makes so much sense now. I I think the biggest takeaway here from the Uganda example is that in emerging markets when we have resources and the opportunities to develop it's actually not just about quickly implementing a certain policy or moving quickly through certain processes and getting rich but rather we have to be deliberate and think through the consequence and the uh, potential outcomes the social and political impacts that our policies may implicate uh, and in this case the, the rich resources may imply um, and I think that's a really meaningful takeaway for the policymakers. Aside from institutional capacity, I guess one huge challenge for Africa and just many emerging market economies in general is their dependence on natural resources, foreign exchange exposures, interest rates, commodity prices, those sort of macroeconomic trends, uh, especially given how China recently is transforming from and export-led economy to a more service- and consumer-oriented economy, and that certainly has an impact on Africa. And I imagine, given how the Federal Reserve has been raising their interest rates and how the commodity prices are falling these days, all those global macroeconomic trends all have an impact on Africa's economy. So Dr. Marks, would you mind giving us a little bit more background or a quick overview on how global macroeconomic landscape and activities usually affect Africa's development, and how dramatic are those impacts?
1: I think it is unavoidably true that many of the African economies are highly vulnerable to the dynamics that you've just described. Um, It is still true, notwithstanding the efforts of many countries to diversify, that the continent taken as a whole is still very much dependent on the export of raw materials and extractive industries. Either it's true for soft commodities as well as for minerals and oil and gas. And as you've rightly said, a lot of the drivers of these commodity markets, at least in recent decades, has been the astounding growth, of course, of China. Now, as China's economy also transforms and adapts, Um, it is true that some of the African countries that have not diversified, and let's take an example like Zambia, major copper producer, but the overwhelming majority of their export receipts come from the export of copper. And with China's growth, they were doing very well. After the collapse of commodity prices in 2014, um, Gambia has suffered dramatically and they have not managed their development prospects away from the copper industry, and they're having great difficulty. So the reduced growth trajectory of China um, is certainly creating challenges for some of these economies that have not reformed. But it's also placed the highlight on some of the economies that have done better at diversifying, creating more value at home, supply chain development at home, more processing industries at home, This is true for members of the East African community, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Ethiopia, of course, which has been a great diversified and manufacturing hub, and some of the economies in West Africa equally. So China's evolution is certainly creating a big challenge, um, but also, as I've said, supporting the positive dynamics of countries that have understood those risks and have diversified. The point about the changing monetary regime in the United States is an equally valid concern, but transmitted primarily through the mechanism of the foreign currency markets. As people are well aware, as the Fed normalizes the interest regime here in the United States, the dollar has been relatively strong. Conversely, um, emerging market currencies and African currencies, notably, Um, have been extremely vulnerable and have been losing value over time. This has created unquestioned dynamics and challenges for monetary authorities in Africa. Uh, Naturally, these economies continue to be importers of a lot of both intermediate and manufactured goods, and therefore you are importing unavoidably inflation as the currencies get very weak. So therefore, it's a common trap in emerging markets that in order to To manage a depressed currency, you tend to increase the interest rate at home in order to try to preserve some kind of balance with the currency. Naturally, raising interest rates at home for some of these economies that are just transforming is not helpful. Raises the cost of credit at home, private credit is squeezed, and therefore the growth dynamic that you're just trying to support is suffocated. So all of these these concerns are highly, highly relevant. Finally, your point, of course, about the tense trade relationships today between the U.S. and China. It goes without saying, for these open economies in Africa, highly dependent on participation in positive trade dynamics globally, um, it's extremely threatening, even for some of the economies that have been clever enough to diversify to gain, for example, the European Union. As more prominent trading partners to balance out their dependence on China, it helps on the margin. But we have to be clear: China uh, has been a very large contributor to the global trade regime, and to the extent that that dynamic with the United States starts to compress China's participation, it's a it's a highly threatening dynamic for Africa.
0: Dr. Marks, we've had some wonderful discussions today about Africa's economic growth and institutional capacity and all that. But just think aside from all of these things, you do have a quite personal connection to Africa in the sense that you personally feel very passionate about development issues there, and you really care about it and hope to attract more attention on the continent. So I guess my question here would be, what do you think is the mindset people should be having today when talking about issues in Africa or related to Africa? And especially in the context of Princeton or just any American university or colleges, what can those institutions do to get more people involved in discussions about Africa?
1: I think it is certainly true at Princeton, as it is for other major research institutions, that it is critical to move beyond the broadest caricature, even as we've unfortunately done on our podcast, to talk about Africa in the broadest terms, but to use the many, many vectors of professional opportunity to get on the continent and to really feel the excitement of the many different development dynamics that are taking place. The great gift that we have of partnering with Parts of the continent with young populations that are growing quickly is that there are many, many ways to interact in a positive sense, either in small scale activities with small communities, as people often get excited about the nonprofit sectors and the charitable sectors that are do- doing good work, or in the areas of engagement that I often have been fortunate enough to work in, in large scale investments working with large institutions directly with the government. It's a blending of skills. I think it's certainly an area that Princeton prides itself on, which is the inter- interdisciplinary approach of blending both political economy approaches with finance, some of the tools we've talked about, about how investment banking and tools that were honed in very mature markets can be put to use with great effect in markets that are growing quickly in Africa. And I think this is, this is one of the great focuses. And that universities have to bring together both traditional characterizations of economic development, foreign assistance, with the reality that things are moving quickly. And if we talk about some of the technological innovations that we talk about comfortably in Silicon Valley, we can apply those to the African continent. And we don't have to talk in the old caricature that Africa is about agriculture and slow growth. All of that may be true but they're areas of innovation that places like Princeton can bring to bear. And so a lot of the young people that are excited about where the cutting-edge technology can be applied, you can do that in Africa, just as you can do it in San Francisco and Singapore, you can also do it in Ghana. And I think that's, that's the excitement for people to realize that there is all of this new innovation going on, and that's why the call to development banks to change their manner of operation as well, coming back to an earlier theme, to find ways to harness this kind of private sector development that is evident everywhere in the world, and we can do it in Africa as well. And that's my my final thought of encouragement. The universities have to be as progressively oriented as they are in mature markets as they are in Africa, because that's really what Africa needs. It's not necessarily the old-fashioned big infrastructure financing, which may be true, but you need to to apply the kind of innovation that we do around the world because Africa can do it as well.
0: In addition to your comments on how American institutions could better engage with Africa, I want to ask you, as the last question of our interview, what advice you would give to young people, especially coming from the perspective of someone working um, across both financial and public sectors. Um and given how you've worked across such a truly diverse range of capacities, I think you could really see the different sides of things and advantages behind each type of work. So what would be your advice for young people, not just in terms of um, engaging on issues with Africa, but just in, I guess in general?
1: I think all of you... You have both the great burden and the great gift to be stepping out into a world which has great complications, as all of you know well, uh, at a global level. But you're also in a period of incredible dynamic change. And that tension between taking on those great challenges, both at the global level in terms of, of inequality equally at national levels, those are challenges that all of you will have to face up to. But at the same time, the tools, both in terms of technological change, our ability to affect positive social change across a range of industries. You don't have to only be the guy working on solar panel design to capture some of those positive dynamics. A lot of the, the ability of technology uh, to transform our lives in the most helpful, positive way is true in mature economies and equally true, and I think this is something which has to be repeated when we talk about Africa, for example, Um, all of the innovations that get people excited about working in technology companies, in working in IT, working even in the financial sectors that support that great, great innovation, in venture capital, in private equity, all of that which you can do in San Francisco or in Singapore you can do in Africa as well. Now, it's one of the messages I give to young people coming right out of university. Get the skills first. Get yourself trained up so that whatever you're going to do at Google or whatever you're going to do, as I've said in Singapore or in Sweden, if you want to work for Spotify, is you get those skills or the financial skills in venture capital firms, investment banks or consulting firms, whatever it is, to gain the confidence and the technical knowledge, and then you can take those skills and you can work anywhere in the world. And if it's true in Vietnam, that the pace of innovation and the openness to change that is there from those young populations that are eager to grow as quickly as the young people that want to come out Of universities in the United States, you can do that in Vietnam, and you can do that in Africa, and you can do that in parts of Central America equally, because the pace of change is there as well. And all of those populations know, because they all have mobile phones as well, they know about the pace of change. Hopefully the governments will be progressive enough to allow for those dynamics to capture the spirit of all of that innovation. But one thing that is lastly true, the diaspora that has gone overseas, and I say that particularly for people, and I say, Tiger, I'll point my finger at you equally, (laughs) um, that have been smart enough to capture the benefits of education globally. You can take all those skills home, and that is really not for me who's too old to do all these things, but you guys, you can capture all that learning, and you can skill yourself up, and that's really where the development potential will be is when you get those skills, you put it in yourself and you take that human capital and you bring it home because that's really where the development advantage will come from. Financial capital, of course, but it'll really follow the human capital that you guys will bring back.
0: That sounds wonderful. And I think the to summarize what we talked about in today's podcast, that all sounds absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for ending on such a positive note today here, Dr. Marks. And I guess just to quickly summarize what we talked about um, in the past, actually two episodes with Dr. Marks. In the previous episode, we talked about development finance. And I guess my biggest takeaway, the, the punchline there was that you really have to find innovative tools and build partnerships and get more people involved in the process. And not just rely on, reside on the traditional models that we've been using in the process of development finance. And building meaningful partnerships is so, so important in today's world. And I think in the second episode, we were talking about Africa primarily, and the Uganda example has um, really struck a chord in me. Is thinking through the policy consequences And being more deliberate about the choices we make and having more progressive leaders, having more young people get involved in the conversation, bringing more Western-educated internationally and open-minded people in the discussion would really, really go a long way in helping the the continent to develop. And I think um, such a wonderful message to have in today's world, uh, brought by Dr. Marks, and I really, really appreciate you coming here today and giving us this opportunity to talk with you. It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Marks, for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Tiger. Thank you very much.
0: And this concludes our two-episode series on development finance in Africa with Dr. Christopher Marks from the Mitsubishi Financial Group. I would also like to take a moment thanking all our listeners. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and visit us on policypunchline.com or jrc.princeton.edu for more information on our podcast. Thank you so much for all your support. We look forward to presenting you with more fascinating content in the future. Thank you again, and see you next time.